take the clicker from you there. Well, let's just bow in prayer before we, um, before we open the word together. Father, we do thank you for your word that teaches us about all things uh, concerning life and godliness. It is sufficient for us. You may not have every answer we wish we had, but it is sufficient for what you want us to know. And so, Lord, now I ask that as my brothers and sisters and myself, as we submit ourselves to your word, that you would teach us authoritatively. May we all recognize that it is not any authority that I possess, but the authority of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, where uh, my thoughts are not good, where my um, interpretation or application, where they are not good, I just pray, Lord, that they would fall on deaf ears. But where your spirit is speaking, I pray they would fall on soft hearts. So teach us, Lord, now as we come to your word. Thank you for what you are doing with uh, Tim and Barbie, um, for uh, their ministry in Kyrgyzstan, for their faithful ministry to their kids, and even preparing them for college and for the life that you have ahead of them. Uh, Father, I do pray that we would uh, remember our missionaries, uh, fervently praying for them, for their encouragement and for their effectiveness in the field. And may we, too, follow their example and live as missionaries in the community in which we live. May we see a lost and dying world and just desire that they would be brought under the salvation that your son Jesus Christ brings them. Thank you for the good that we have. May we be good stewards of it. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, If you would open your Bibles to Genesis 21, we're going to be continuing uh, our series here, our long series that may never end. Well, it'll end when the book ends, so we're a ways off. You may be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I've been tracking really closely, Eric. We're on chapter 20. Uh, We're not. We're on 21 this morning. We're going to skip over uh, part of 20 uh, because there are two narratives that really bracket this story, and they have to do with Abimelech, and we're going to take them together next week. So this week we're going to jump ahead to uh, chapter 20, and and, uh, we're going to focus on that. There are times when, um, when you're reading your Bibles, that there are some things going on sort of below the text or below what our English translations may bring forward. Uh, it's, it's not always there. It's not always a crucial thing. But sometimes it happens. And there is something in this particular uh, chapter that is going on sort of at the level of the original language that I want to pull forward. And that is there's this word that appears a bunch. There's this, this play on words. And it's the word laughter. It appears many times in the beginning of this, this chapter. In fact, uh, it, it appears in one form or another seven times. Five times in, in just the first nine verses. Laughter. And several of the occurrences are simply uh, as it relates to the name Isaac. Because that's what his name means, Isaac. And so that, the root word for laughter is right there connected to his name. But then it appears a couple other times. And it's contrasted, for example, with... Uh, Sarah's response to what the Lord was doing, uh, her response was laughter. And so we see it there. And then again later in the chapter we see it, uh, that, that same root word is, is a part of the word um, for Ishmael's treatment of Isaac. It says that he was mocking him. And laughter is a, is a part of that word as well. And so it seems basically what's happening here is that the author is the author of this narrative is taking these words and kind of playing them once one against the other. And it sort of begs the natural question, and that is this, how do we respond to the activities of God? 
particularly the surprising work of God that catches us off guard. Whether it's good, whether it's a long-awaited-for blessing from the Lord, or whether it's a long trial or a sudden disruption in our lives. What is our response to the Lord? Do we respond in laughter, the laughter of disbelief, like Sarah did when she was told that she would bear a child? Do we respond in a mocking manner, the way we'll see that Ishmael treats his younger brother, brother seems to despise him and, and uh, mocks him in some way? Or do we laugh with a, with a joy at the goodness of God, at what he has done, the way Abraham initially responded to the Lord, I believe, and the way eventually Sarah would learn to respond? How do we respond to the activity of God in our lives? whether it's unexpected blessing or long trial. In the first seven verses of this passage, we get a really, just a beautiful snapshot of what I would refer, or what I would call, uh, life as it should be. This, this really rich Hebrew word, shalom. Which we kind of typically think of, shalom means peace, right? It means much more than peace. It means an integrated life. Life of beauty. Things as they should be. When everything is just good and wholesome and beautiful. And that seems to be basically what's, what's going on here in these, these first seven verses. Um, life is good. And when life is good, God is good, right? That's how we treat it. When life is good, God is good. But when life is hard or unexpected or unraveling, God is what? And I would just ask the simple question, if that's the paradigm that we work within, then who is really God? This, this particular chapter at the beginning shows us, let me move ahead here. We're almost there. I feel like I'm at home flipping channels, you know. When life is good, God is in control. And that's, that's kind of how things seem here. Look with me at verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And so on these first couple of verses here, we're really reassured of God's control in things, aren't we? We get this rapid fire of these statements that we love to hear. This is life as we want it to be. God is going to do what he said as he promised at the very time he promised it. That's a good life, right? That's what I want. A God who meets my expectations on schedule. We're reassured that he is in control here. Derek Kidner calls this the quiet precision of God's control. He did what he said as he promised when he said it would, he would do it. Those are the seasons of life that we want, where we are reassured of God's control. When we're in that particular season, obedience is really an easy response, isn't it? Of course I'll respond to a God who acts as he promised, does what he said, and does it on schedule. Look at the way Abraham and and Sarah uh, react to this. In verse 3, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 
Now we might look at this and say, hey, these aren't exactly hard steps of obedience, are they? Naming a child the name uh, that they were supposed to. This is really one of the, the great privileges that we have as parents to name our children. Uh, I talked to someone this morning uh, who, who, in fact, uh, was trying to figure out the name for their child that's going to be born in just a couple weeks. And they're struggling over it because they really appreciate the meaning of names. And there's a great joy to sort of think about what would we name our kids that would reflect some of our values. Amy and I had a chance to, to go through this. The name of, of our son, Aiden, it means fire. And when he was born, the doctor that delivered him said, well, we'll hope that he's filled with the fire of God and not become an arsonist or something like that. <laughs> um, we named him, as you know well, we named him for A.W. Tozer, a guy that we kind of like a little bit. And so uh, we kind of named him to honor that man in his ministry. Our, our daughter, Eleanor, uh, we named her for Jane Austen's character in Pride and Prejudice because of the quiet strength and leadership that Eleanor portrays in that story. And we had hoped that some of those traits might come forward in our daughter and so that's why we picked that particular name and for my last son last son uh, we named him Augustine uh, for the saint who brought us some of the richest theology on the trinity and on salvation Uh, we hoped we had named him for the saint but sometimes we think we've named him for the Alaskan volcano because yeah because (laughs) we also thought nobody else on the playground will have that name so that that'll be good But this step of naming a child, I mean, that's a joy. And to give him the name that God has given, that's an easy joy. That's easy obedience, right? After all, this is a God who does what he said he was going to do, as he promised and when he said it. Sure, we can give him that name. Circumcision, that might be a little bit harder to follow through, especially for a sympathetic dad who just winces at the word. And any of you dads who have been there and observed that particular procedure, you know that was the day that little boys learned to cry. I remember it well. For Abraham, though, this is not just a medical procedure. This is a really beautiful event. This is the time where his son essentially comes under the covenant of God. This is a rich and meaningful experience. It is a spiritual experience, you might, or you might argue, for both he and for Isaac. The closest thing I can think of to sort of relate that to us is, is probably the baptism, baptism that we get to see today. I'm going to show you one of the most important pictures that I have. This is it right here. That's me and my son at Chena Lake. And this is the day that Aiden decided that he wanted to publicly tell all of you that he loves Jesus and he wants to follow him. And I got to be the guy that dipped him in the water and, and pulled him out. Right there. And you want to talk about a proud dad. That was a special moment. It's one of the most meaningful pictures that I have. For Abraham and Sarah, these are the best of days. The child of promise is here after a 23-year wait. They get to give him the name that God has given him. They get to circumcise him as a symbol of his coming under the covenant promise of God. And Sarah captures the tone of these days really well in her words. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And you even get a hint of just sort of the pride and the excitement that she has, just even between in her marital relationship with Abraham, that they've had this son. These are good days. 
And in good days, laughter abounds. Joy and laughter overflowing. Sarah is no longer laughing at God and his ridiculous promise. But she actually credits God with changing her laughter of incredulity to a laughter of of joy. A laughter that she'll share with other people. This is a great picture of sort of these moments of shalom. And you and I get them every now and then in life, don't we? You ever have that feeling where maybe you're, you're driving along the road in, on the road and there's no impending crisis? There's no undue strain on you? You're not terrified about something? You're not worried? Life's kind of manageable at that moment. Everything's okay with you and with the world and you're driving along and you just think, wow, everything's okay right now. The Bible tells us, you know what, enjoy enjoy those times, rejoice in them because they're not here every day. Ecclesiastes even talks about uh, taking time to celebrate with our friends when we have those days and to make the most of it because unfortunately you and I live in a world that's been hijacked by sin. Contrary to popular opinion, this world isn't getting better. It's not being refined or improved. It's getting worse. Sin is this distortion, this contamination, this corrosive agent that God never intended for this world, but that is in here, eating away at it, distorting it, decaying it. And our job is not to refine it to make it better, but honestly, Scripture says that we're here basically to prevent the decay until the Lord comes back and restores everything as it should be. We see this in our bodies as they age, as we have difficulties. We see it in our relationships as they break down. We can see it even in the physical world as things break down and decay. So while this, at this particular moment in the life of Abraham and Sarah and their family, life is good, God is good, everything seems to be great, it actually doesn't take long for sin and ugliness to rear its, to rear its head here. Look at verse 8. It says, The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. In the, in the ancient world here, typically a child was weaned at age 3. And, and when that occurred, they would have a big celebration because it was a mark that the child was now not in such a fragile situation, but they were stronger and more resilient. They could take a big knock on a head or fall down the stairs and, and survive it. And so this process of being weaned was sort of a uh, a rite of passage to celebrate the strength of a, of a child that is able to stand on its own two feet now, so to speak. So everything seems pretty good here, and we think everything is, is going well. And then a teenager shows up. And you know about teenagers, they mess up everything. And I'm sorry if you're a teenager, I'm going to pick on you here for just a little bit. Remember that when Abraham was uh, 86 years old, that is, when, um, that is when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. He was 100 years old when Sarah gave birth to Isaac. So mathematicians out there everywhere, 14 years. But wait a minute, how old, how old is um, Isaac at this time? Three, you've got to add three. There we go. We've got a 16 to a 17-year-old teenager on the scene. And he is going to mess up everything as teenagers do. You know what Mark Twain said about a teenager? He said, when kids get into junior high, we should put them in a barrel and seal it up and feed them through a knot hole. (laughs) 
He said, when they get into high school, we should plug the knot hole. And I'm not saying he's right, but it is an interesting observation. And so here we have this teenage Ishmael, 16 to 17 years old, with the reputation in advance that he's going to be what? A donkey of a man. That's what God said he would be. And so we have this donkey of a man teenager beginning to act out. Verse 9. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And remember, this word mocking here contains again that root word for laughter. Okay, We'll get back to that in a little bit. Was mocking and she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son Isaac. Well now we're introduced to the tension in the plot here. And we have another question to consider, and that's this. Well, when life is hard, is God in control? I mean, he was in control a minute ago when he said he was going to do what he did, what he promised, and he did it on schedule. Life, he, was, he was in control then. But now we've got teenagers, and they're cantankerous, and they're jeopardizing these plans. And there's sort of this inherent question, well, is God in control now? Ishmael is very cantankerous. It's interesting to me that he's ever, never actually referred to by name in this chapter. His name doesn't appear. To Sarah, he's the son whom Hagar bore, or that slave woman's son. To Abraham, it's his son or the boy. And God himself refers to him as the boy. He's unnamed in this particular chapter. It seems to me that the side of the story we're meant to focus on at this time is Isaac's side of the story. But nevertheless, here he is, Ishmael, being cantankerous, mocking Isaac, mocking this child of promise, what God has, has done, belittling him in some way. And I think there's actually a great irony here. The irony to me is, do you remember, it was Sarah who mistreated Hagar. Do you remember that? It was Sarah who mistreated Hagar. And now it's Hagar's son who is mistreating Isaac. And this is what's upsetting to her. And the old saying is true, isn't it? We dislike what we dislike in ourselves, we despise in others. And so her, Sarah's mama bear instincts kick in. And she's going to respond. She's concerned uh, about Ishmael's attitude towards her son Isaac. And it seems, the text makes it clear, that really what's driving all of this is that she fears that Ishmael will jeopardize the inheritance. That's what's driving her. And her solution is simple. Get rid of him. And you talk about disdain. She doesn't even use their first names. She says, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Boy, don't, don't mess with a mom and her child, right? You know, there are even studies that say if there's some kind of a crisis, let's say a, a house was burning and inside are a husband and a child and they both need help, you know who mom's going to go help? The child. She'll pray for her husband, but she's rescuing the child. Okay? Men, just so you know, go home, get the fire extinguisher or whatever because your wife ain't coming to your aid. She's getting the kids. I think it's a little difficult to actually, you know, as readers of this particular story, to determine sort of the legitimacy of Sarah's response. Is it appropriate? Is it wise? 
Is it an overreaction? I'll be honest, I'll tip my hands here. I, I, think, I think it seems to be a bit of an overreaction. She doesn't even go for the yellow card, straight to red. She just sends them off. You know, you're out of here. And Abraham, poor Abraham, is caught in the middle, trying to figure out, what do I do with this? He's conflicted. Look at verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. And so there's sort of like this ancient custody battle almost going on here. Abraham's heart is pulled multiple directions and you're kind of left with the question is, how can Abraham come out of this a righteous man? Surely he wants to honor his wife and her wishes. But he loves both of his sons. And most likely he's concerned about doing what's right for Hagar. After all, she's a servant in his household. And certainly above all, he wants to honor the Lord. He's in an impossible situation here what is he to do it seems that no matter whatever choice that he would make he's going to alienate somebody or frustrate somebody even scarier than that there's the possibility that his decision could jeopardize the promises or the plan of god does he have that power just a question to think about he doesn't want to make a choice to put anything in jeopardy and for me personally, as I'm, as I'm reading this passage, the tension that Abraham faces is the one that really comes forward for me. Now, m- maybe the rest of you, you find different people in this particular chapter, uh, their experience resonates with you more clearly. Maybe you, your, your, your story is more in line with Hagar or with Sarah or with the boys. But for me, I kind of think, think about Abraham here and the decision that's in front of him. And you and I, many of us are in positions of leadership or authority where we have to make decisions for groups of people. If you're a mom or a dad, you have these kinds of decisions to make. Where will you educate your children? Will you send them to a public school or a private school or home school? What will you do? Maybe you're a manager at a, at a business in town and you've got a couple employees and uh, you need to let somebody go. Well, who do you let go? And on what criteria? No matter what decision you make, you're going to anger somebody. Maybe you're considering expanding your business. It's an opportunity. You could have more clients. You can make more money, more of a positive impact. But it will also come with more cost. Cost to your family, cost to the overhead. And you weigh this out and you're not sure what to do. How much advice do you give to your adult child? They clearly need it. You know better. How much do you press and give them truth? Or how much space do you give them to learn these nuggets of truth on their own? And you and I are face all of these, these kinds of decisions frequently. And I would say, and this is a bit of a confession, these kinds of decisions seem impossible to make and sometimes they even seem harder when you bring God into it. Can I just say that? I, I find that oftentimes my decision making doesn't get easier simply because I'm a follower in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it gets actually harder. So all of us have these kinds of situations. You know, unfortunately, this particular passage doesn't give us this nice, neat matrix for for decision-making. You know, some grid that we can run everything through and be assured of an ultimate and perfect outcome if we just follow these steps. It doesn't do that. But we are given one very significant piece of comfort here. And that's this. We are assured that in, that in all of life, 
that in all of life, God is in control. The passage started that way, reassuring us that God reigns supreme even over our free decisions. And it concludes that way as well. Look at verse 12. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy or your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Now some of the ladies in the room might say, See, there is a matrix there for making all decisions. Do whatever your wife tells you. It's right there in black and white. That's what we're supposed to do. You guys have probably seen the uh, fridge magnet that goes up declaring the rules of the house. Rule number one, mom's always right. Rule number two, when mom's wrong, see rule number one. Yeah. <laughs> to me, there, there in, in, uh, in verse 13, there, there is um, three words that just scream out to me a comfort that it is God who composes our future not our free will decisions. It's these words, I will make. And here we see the sovereign and active work of God in every aspect in life. Even, even before all of this started in the Abrahamic covenant, do you remember all of the I will statements? I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And those who oppose you, I will curse them. And we see the activity of God over and above the free will decisions of mankind. I don't mean to make light of uh, our decisions or to say that they are um, inconsequential. Scripture tells us that we're to consider our, our decisions carefully. We're to bring them under the scrutiny of the word. We're to bring them under the scrutiny and the advice of counselors. But I think what we're reassured with here in this particular statement is this, that we make the decisions, but the Lord will have his way. The Lord will have his way, and that will not be jeopardized. I think St. Augustine goes a little too far when he says to love God and then do whatever you want. It's true that our actions would flow out of a love for God. I think he goes a little bit too far for me. But nevertheless, what we're comforted with here is this. We don't jeopardize the Lord's plans. We don't derail what God has set in place. If it is his desire to perform it, he will. And we're remind of his, reminded of his control in every aspect of life to our comfort or to our frustration. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And Proverbs 16.9 that in his heart a man plans his course. But what? The Lord determines his steps. We also see in this passage something that I, I hope is of comfort to you, and that is this, that God protects the weak. I have to be honest with you. I sat here and looked at these words in my outline for a long time. And I sat there and thought, is that true? As every one of us could probably tell a story or are living a story where that does not seem to be the case where weakness seems to prevail and the strength of the Lord does not seem to show up. It's true in this story. It's true throughout Scripture. It's true ultimately at the cross that God protects and provides for the weak. In this specific story here, 
God's strategy of sending Hagar and Ishmael away was not a sign of divine abandonment. But in fact, it was his preservation and his protection for Isaac and his preparing Ishmael for what was due him. It doesn't just happen at the expense of Ishmael either. We're told twice in this passage, I mean, he declares that he will make Ishmael into a great nation. He does that to comfort Abraham, and he also does it to comfort Hagar. And so many of us might read this passage and feel like, well, that's a great story, but what about these two that got cast off? They're out there in the wilderness and hanging by a thread. Verse 14 says, Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And I just have to pause there. It's just interesting, isn't it? It seems as though she puts this little infant under the bushes. He's a teenager, but anyways, I don't know if she just said, just stay there, like I said, but anyways, um, verse 16, then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. Notice the switch here. Read carefully verse 17. We just read, she began to sob. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him, Egypt. She sounds industrious, by the way. The point I want to draw out from this is this, that God's work is bigger than our own experience. I think this is fascinating here. We're told this, this part of the story from Hagar's perspective. Right? She's been given provision from Abraham when they, were le- when they left, when they were sent off. She's got the, she has had this water. Now it's out. They have no provision. And she's, it, we're told that she sets the boy down and then removes herself because... She can't watch him die. And so all along we're considering her emotions, her feeling. We're told the story from her sobbing eyes, from her tired sandals, and from her, the seat of her emotions. We're put there in her perspective. All of her resources are gone. And what we're told is it wasn't even her sobs that caused the Lord to respond. It was the sobs of the boy. Here she is, with nothing, nothing to put forward, nothing to change the circumstance. Everything has been taken from her. And the only thing she has left to spend on her t- is her tears, and it's not even her tears that God uses. There's that big switch. It's the tears of her son that God uses. It seems to me that God took Hagar to a place of absolute helplessness so that she could learn from where her help comes from. And in the midst of it all, she learns about the absolute dependability of God. Not even her tears caused him to act. It was in her desperation that she learned she could trust him. Stripped of every resource so that she could trust God absolutely. If you read the commentators on this particular passage, many of them will say, well, here's the application. 
We're to take every hindrance to our relationship with God and get rid of it and send it out. And I look at that and I think, well, that might be a biblical truth, but I don't see that being taught from this particular passage here. It sounds good, but I don't think it's right. Remember we talked about at the outset of this particular series that much of the book of Genesis doesn't resolve neatly into three easy steps for a better you or what to go out and do. But most of the time, the passage that we're looking at is going to tell us about who our God is, what he is like, and life under his control. Remember the goal of this book is Worldview 101 to our Jewish refugees who are themselves in the wilderness, wondering if their God is trustworthy. The conclusion I would draw is this. Overall, we learn about the absolute dependability of God. And that in the midst of the heaviest decisions that we have to make, where we might feel an absolute tension, where we cannot win, we are reassured that it is God's sovereignty that constructs the future, not just our free choices. And last of all, I would bring you back to this word laughter, this play on, word, uh, on words that the author begins the narrative with. And I, I believe he means this as a diagnostic tool for us. So that we would read the narrative and basically ask ourselves the question, what is our heart's response to God's work when he does the unexpected or the undesirable? Is our response a laughter like Sarah's of incredulity? No way! I I don't believe it. Is it a laughter of disbelief? Is it a laughter of, of mocking? Where we feel adversarial with God and we hate what he is doing? As it seems Ishmael's response was at first? Or is it a laughter of joy that Abraham and Sarah learned over time? And my prayer for you this morning is this. If your laughter is not a laughter of joy you can take comfort in the fact that God changed Sarah's laughter of disbelief into a laughter of joy. He did it. He changed it in his time. Let's pray. Father, this passage does not resolve easily. It's not exactly a good-feeling passage that we get to walk out with. It doesn't give us three steps to a better life. Just the reassurance, hopefully, that you're in control. Father, for my friends here who who feel as though life is out of control, spiraling, disintegrating, may they be reminded that you are absolutely faithful and dependable and that in your timing you can change their laughter of disbelief or even mocking to a laughter of joy. May we trust you in the midst of our journey. In Christ's name, amen.